Matthew chapter 5, if you would, in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. It's time to agree. That was for all my Bible class students and those handing in sermon notebooks who need to have titles on their notes. But I think you'll find out what that means as we go along this morning. Matthew chapter 5, as you're turning there, you will notice that the large portion really just excluding two verses of chapter 5, chapter 6, all the way into chapter 7, except for the last two verses. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you'll notice that the entire thing is read. Matthew 5 through 7 is the most well-known sermon that Jesus ever preached. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And there are many wonderful things for us. You talk about a sermon. There's a lot, there's a lot in this sermon. Of course, the, the most famous being the Beatitudes in the beginning of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Our memory verse, Matthew 5.16, is in this chapter. Many other wonderful truths. We won't take the time to talk about each one. However, there's a unique and perhaps puzzling statement that Jesus makes in verse 25 and verse 26 that we want to look at here this morning. Jesus simply says, Matthew 5 verse 25, agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee to the officer and thou be cast into prison Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. This statement is repeated in a slightly different way in the book of Luke chapter 12. Jesus said, when thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison, I tell thee that thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last might. Now some have approached these two verses and they, uh, they, they see it as uh, Jesus giving some solid, very practical, legal advice. And it is good legal advice. It makes good legal sense. When you realize that you have wronged someone, that especially in the case you've, you've broken the law and violated it towards someone else, when you realize that you have done such a thing, don't take your chances with the law. Instead, settle out of court as quickly as possible. Even in our own legal system, potential defendants in lawsuits are much better off to simply admit guilt, if there is guilt there, and settle with their accusers, come to an agreement, rather than taking their chances in a court of law. So it is solid legal advice. It will save you some money. It might save you some heartache. But I think Jesus is talking about more than just Legal advice. There's something more here. And in fact, I I believe what's here is perhaps the most important command 
Or we could say it's the most important advice that you and I could ever receive. So we want to dig into this passage and find out what in the world Jesus is talking about. So I just want to focus in on some key words in this verse, uh, or in these two verses, I should say. Verse 25 says, agree with thine adversary. There's the word adversary. In this text, we're told that you and I have an adversary. That word adversary simply means an opponent in a, in a suit of law. It's the plaintiff. It's the accuser. You and I have an adversary. We have to ask ourselves the question, who is or what is this adversary? The Bible does speak of the devil, of Satan being our adversary and being an accuser um, that accuses the brethren. However, in the context and in the surrounding verses, it does not seem like that is the emphasis that that is what Jesus is referring to. In fact, if you look at the context, the context largely surrounds one thing. And I'll, let me, let's look at a few verses, and I hope you will be able to see this for yourself. Look there in verse 17, what Jesus says. He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be justified. Skip down to verse number 21. It says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Well, where do we find that saying that has been said of old? Where do we find the decree, Thou shalt not kill? Well, it's contained in God's law. And of course, Jesus expands on it in verse 22. I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, and that's an insult, um, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. You skip down to verse number 27. You have heard, um, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, where was it said in old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery? It was said in God's law, the Ten Commandments. Verse 28, I say unto you, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Skip down to verse 43, and, and by no means are we looking at it all. You're welcome to read it all at different times, just pointing out some highlights. Verse 43, you have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. The context here that Jesus is referring back to and hearkening back to over and over again is the context of the law. The context here in this chapter identifies the law as that which identifies specifically a fault, points out a fault, and then takes you to a magistrate or to a judge to adjudicate that specific fault. This is God's law. And specifically, Jesus is highlighting not just the letter of the law, not just this is the wording of the law or this is what the law says, but Jesus is emphasizing this is the spirit of the law. This was the intent of the law. This is what God's intent was in giving us this law. This is the level, the, the, uh, um, uh, the, the point of... I should say the point of attainment 
Maybe we'll put it that way. This is the level of goodness that is required by God in his law. This is what was meant when he said those things. And so the adversary that you and I face, the adversaries which identifies faults in us and takes us to the magistrate, that adversary is none other than the law of God. Many people in our world today treat God's law as their friend and not their adversary. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, many people treat God's law as if it is their friend because they use God's law as a way to prove their own superiority or their own goodness. So it is their friend. And they want to take religion and God's law with them wherever they go because it's, it's a tool that they can use to prove that they are better than everyone else, to prove that they are good uh, compared to everyone else, and they, they view it as their friend. But can I tell you today that God's law is not your friend in that way. It is actually your adversary. It is that which points itself at you and finds fault, finds sin. It is the law that informs us of our sin, or it's the law that confronts us with our sin. Paul said in Romans 7 and verse 7, I had not known sin but by the law. In other words, ignorance is bliss, right? I had not known that there was a problem of sin. I had not known that I was at fault except for the fact that God gave me the law and that law pointed at me and said, you're in the wrong. You have sinned. He said, I I had not known lust, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. I had not known that I was a lustful individual, that I had the sin of lust in my heart until the law came and pointed its finger at me and there was no escape. By the law is the knowledge of sin. And it would be nice to just be ignorant. I'd rather not know about all of my faults and what a a terrible person I, I am. But the law comes and points it out in living color for everyone to see. And see, the law doesn't do anything more than that. It shows me my problem, but doesn't help me do anything about it. And Paul pointed this out in the book of Hebrews when when he said, by the law, or I should say, he said, the law maketh nothing perfect. It's, it's, the, it's the, the, the illustration of the mirror. When you looked in the mirror this morning, you, you perhaps saw some things that needed to be changed so that you could be more presentable, but the mirror didn't say, here, let me help you fix the problem. No, it just pointed out the problem and said, you, had a pro- you have a problem and you need to fix it. Amen. That's what the law does. It can't help you. It's only there to condemn you. And and this is the case in just the court of law. When you're confronted and you have a case in front of a judge in, in a court of law, your goodness and your standing as a model citizen are not the topic of conversation. It doesn't matter how much good you have done. It does not matter if, if, you have a, if you have a traffic ticket, a speeding fine. It does not matter the numerical number of times that you obeyed the speed limit. It doesn't matter. We're only here to talk about the one time 
maybe more than once, but the one time you got caught disobeying the law. Your, your goodness is not a topic of conversation. This is the adversary that you and I face. This adversary is a harsh adversary. In Romans 5, verse 20, the Bible tells us the law entered that the offense might abound. I don't know about you, I prefer to minimize my offenses. I prefer to take my, to my sin and explain it away or, you know, uh, give reasons for it and, and kind of, you know, let it hide in the, in the corner a bit. Kind of, uh, you know, don't look over there. Let's look over here. That, that's what I would prefer. However, the law comes that the offense might abound. The law comes to magnify the piece of dirt that's in the corner. The offense abounds. In Romans 3 and verse 19, we're told that we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. That doesn't sound very kind now, does it? And all the world may become guilty before God. This is the function of the law. That's harsh. The reason God gave us the law is so that we would stop talking, stop trying to justify ourselves, stop trying to exalt our own goodness, and instead acknowledge our guilt before God. That's the whole function. That's what it's there for. And as a result, in Romans 4 and verse 15, we're told that the law worketh wrath. So what does that mean? Well, the idea of wrath is... Just anger. It is anger with the intent on vengeance. So the law enters and the law works wrath because the law points out sin and it points out the need for justice to be carried out, for there to be a fine that is paid, for for there to be a punishment that's meted out. And so the law works wrath for where no law is, there there is no transgression. If the law didn't exist, then we wouldn't have anything to identify sin, then we could kind of get off scot-free. But the law worketh wrath. It's a harsh adversary. It's also a relentless adversary. In Galatians chapter 3, the law is described as our schoolmaster. Now, among the Greeks and the Romans, that name, schoolmaster, was applied to trustworthy slaves who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of boys belonging to the better class. The boys were not allowed so much as to step out of the house without their schoolmaster before they arrived at the age of manhood. It was a relentless adversary. In other words, the schoolmaster was always there. You weren't allowed to leave the house. You weren't allowed to go anywhere without your schoolmaster, the the slave of your, your father, watching every move that you make. The law is relentless in the fact that it's always there. It's always watching. You can't escape it. When I was in elementary school, I had a I had a schoolmaster. I had a teacher. And when we would push things a little bit too far, I've told the teens about this many times, when we would kind of, you know, push our freedom a little too far, he would declare Teacher on the warpath. And he had a little tiny statue. I think it was Attila the Hun. I don't remember. Um, but he had a little statue of Attila the Hun. And he used a little piece of, uh, 
a sticky tack to, to attach that to a bottle cap, which she had striped yellow and red stripes on it. And that little Till of the Hun statue was placed on the overhead projector. You, you kids can ask your parents what that is. All right. The overhead projector uh, mirror. And you know, teacher on the warpath, he was going to watch everything. He was going to look for every single infraction. There's no grace, no mercy. You break the law, you pay for the fact that you broke the rules, you broke the law. This is the schoolmaster. He's always there. He's always watching. You can't escape. There's no break. There's no, okay, now now we can kind of relax and and let our hair down a little bit and, and we can do whatever we want to do. No, no, no. It's a relentless adversary. It's always there. It's also a demanding adversary. When Jesus summarized the law in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40, Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. Every bit of it. In other words, the law says that you are to love God all the time with everything. And we say, well, you know, maybe I loved God some of the time. Maybe I loved God a few times. Maybe I loved God with a little bit of my heart once in a while. Isn't that good enough? No, the law says I want all, every bit of it, every piece of it. And then he said, you're to, the second command is like unto it. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. I know that's the golden rule. We talk about that a lot. But have you ever thought about what that means? How much do you love yourself? When husbands are told or they're commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church, to nourish them as they nourish their own flesh, that's a a high bar. Now apply that to the person who lives next door. To the person that you walk, um, you know, you, you walk by at Walmart. That's a high bar. It's a high standard. It's a demanding adversary. It's the one with the notepad watching everything that we do. Every infraction. It's a demanding adversary. It's also an unforgiving adversary. In James 2 and verse 10, we're told that if we keep the whole law and offend in one point, we're guilty of it all. And of course, the fine... The fine for violation of God's law will take an entire, an entire eternity to pay. This is a harsh, harsh adversary that we face. In Galatians 3.10, we're told about the curse that we're under. It says, for as many as are, are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things. All things which were written in the book of the law to do that. Not just some things, but all things. This adversary is also a very personal adversary. And he says that in the verse, right? In verse 25, agree with thine adversary, your adversary. This is one that is targeting you. This is the adversary that we face. John Bunyan, in his, in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, he allegorized this adversary, the law, as the hill of morality. And Pilgrim was told, all you have to do in order to get rid of your, your burden of sin, all you have to do is just go and climb that hill of morality. And so 
He decided, I'm going to go climb the hill. And we got, he got there and that hill just loomed over him. It, it felt like it was going to fall on his head. It, 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 it quaked. There was fire coming from it. And all it caused was sweat and fear. And that's what the law does. So it's us versus the law. And we don't measure up. We don't stand a chance. That is our adversary. But notice what else he says in verse number 25. Agree with thine adversaries quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge. So we've seen something about our adversary. Think about this. We also have a judge. Who is the judge? Well, you don't have to think very long and hard about this. Genesis 18 verse 25 describes Almighty God as the judge of all the earth. In Hebrews 12 and verse 23, God is described as the judge of all. You see, it is God's law, it is the law that is our adversary, which takes us, arrests us, and brings us before the judge to point out our faults, to declare, to show, to make evident the sin that is in our hearts. And now God must judge. He is an all-knowing judge. In the book of Hebrews, it describes his word as the sword, sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints of marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we're not just talking about God being able to see the external things that we do, but God, our judge, can see much deeper than that. He can see the sinful thoughts. He can see the sinful desires that you may never have even uh, acted upon, but you thought it, God sees it. The very next verse tells us that there is, that, that there is not any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. God sees it all. There's nothing hidden from him. There, there, there's no pulling the wool over the eyes of this judge. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus uh, speaks of the fact that every idle word that men shall speak, shall give, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Every idle word, every thought, every word, every deed, nothing can be hidden from this judge. He sees it all. He's an all-knowing judge. But he's also a just judge. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8 describes the Lord as the righteous judge. He is righteous. Peter, when he stood up uh, on the, the day of Pentecost and he preached his message, he called Jesus the Holy One and the just. Now, lest you think, okay, that's a comforting thing. God is just. Well, consider this. Can a just judge ignore a violation of his law? Can a just judge bypass a violation of his law? If he is to be just, can he just pardon a violation of his law? I know some people, they say, well, God, God forgives. He can't forgive 
if he's just. Now hold on, there's an explanation for that. But God just does not forgive. Because if he just forgave, if you consider a human judge who just said, you know what, you probably had a bad day. It's okay. You know, just don't, don't do it again, all right? He would not be just. If a, just were to, if a judge were to say, you know what, I, you know, I, I've seen what you, you've done. It's very clear that you're guilty of what you have done. And so, you know, but I, I just feel very loving and forgiving today. And so I, it's, it's, it's rather messy to go through the whole, you know, punishment for crime thing and, you know, have to do sentencing and all that. So we'll just, we'll just pretend like this never happened. Would he be just? In fact, the Bible tells us very plainly twice in the Old Testament, in Exodus 34 and verse 7 and Numbers 14 and verse 18, they both, both of those verses describe God as one that will by no means clear the guilty. That's pretty clear. God will by no means clear the, clear the guilty because He is just. He's a just judge. He's also an authoritative judge. He is one with authority. In verse 25, it talks about how this judge will deliver the offender to his officers. He has the authority to command his officers. And who are these officers? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 13 and verse 41, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which, and, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. These officers are the angels who are doing the bidding of the judge. And when a guilty verdict comes down, when a just verdict comes down, it is the job of the angels to carry out, to facilitate the eventual punishment. So he's a judge with authority. Authority to command his officers, but also the authority to cast into prison. He mentions that at the end of verse 5. The judge shall deliver thee to the officer, and thou will be cast into Prison. What is this prison? Well, the Bible's pretty clear. Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, verse 4 and 5, Be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath the power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. That's what Jesus said. Of course, we could go to the book of Revelation chapter 20, which describes the end of all sinners. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it and from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God, the judge, has authority to cast into prison. And God, the judge, has the authority to extract full payment. Verse 26 describes that full payment in our text. Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Every penny. 
In fact, in the book of Luke chapter 12, the verse we read a a few moments ago, Jesus said, you're not going to escape until you pay the very last mite. The mite was one of the smallest units of monetary measurement. You're going to pay every single bit of it. How long does it pay? How long does it take to pay your sin debt? How long does it take to pay off my sin debt? Jude verse 7 describes hell as vengeance or justice of eternal fire. Eternal fire. Matthew 25, Jesus describing himself as the Son of Man, how he's going to come and sit in the throne of his glory and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to separate those who are his children and those who are not his children. And those on the left, he's going to say, Matthew 25, verse 41, then he shall say also to them on the left, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The fine for violation of God's law, will take eternity to pay. So we have a daunting adversary who is going to deliver us, and rightfully so, to an eternal judge. What are we going to do? What are we supposed to do? Well, here's where the advice, the command of Jesus is so significant because he tells us exactly what we must do. It is found in the very first word of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 25. That word is agree. We've seen our adversary. We've seen our judge. Now let's look at our agreement. We must agree. This this word agree is is a fascinating word because it's only used a couple of times and it's translated in a variety of different ways. One way, 1 Timothy 4 and verse Verse 15, the word agree, that the Greek word there for agree, is translated as to give yourself fully. Same, same word, same idea. So the thought there is the, the idea that we're giving ourselves to our adversary. We're surrendering with no contest. We're saying, I'm guilty. In Matthew chapter 2, again, that same word translated for agree is translated, be thou there. Be there. The idea is stop trying to get away. Stop running. Stop making excuses. Stop trying to get around the law. Instead, surrender to it. Stop running. Webster defines the word agree. To be of one mind. To harmonize an opinion. In the New Testament, there's a word that means agreement that is used often and spoken of often in the context of salvation. And it is this word, confession. Agreement is confession. The word confession comes from the Greek word homo legeo. Homo is the same. Legeo is to say, to say the same thing. Agreement. To harmonize the opinion. To come to one opinion. And it's not your opinion. It's the opinion of your adversary. So agreement would then mean that I have to admit that my way, my thoughts, my opinions, even my person are wrong. That's what it means to agree. And what exactly are we agreeing with? Who are we agreeing with? Well, it says in verse 25, agree with thine adversary. 
We're agreeing with the law. We're agreeing with the definition of the law. That the law has the right and the proper place of defining what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. That the law has the right to, to define that which is right and that which is wrong. You ask the question, am I a good person? Are you a good person? Well, it all depends who or what is defining the meaning of good. Somebody has to take on that role. And of course, naturally, we tend to say, well, you know, I'm the arbiter of what is good. I decide what is good, which is rather convenient. You see, it's the law that defines what badness is, not your opinion. And when we agree with the law, we agree with the definition of the law. We agree with the fact that whatever the law says is sin is actually sin. I don't get to define that. I don't get to say, well, I don't see a problem with that. I don't get to say, well, I don't, I, I don't, I don't see how that's all that bad. No, I don't have the right to do that if I agree with the law. I agree with the definition of the law. Often we do what the children of Israel did when they were faced with the constraints of God's law in the book of Judges. They decided to do that which was right in their own eyes. And there's the rub. Because to agree, and to agree with our adversary, we have to give up that which is right in our own eyes. And instead say, God, in your law, you get to define what is right and what is wrong. In Judges 21, 25, it says, In those days there was no king. There was no law enforcement. In those days there was no law in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And as human beings, this is our natural default position. I get to define what is right and what is wrong. And there's the problem. Because you're not in agreement with your adversary. You're in opposition to your adversary. When faced with the alternative of living by my own opinion, of living based on what I think is right, versus living according to the dictates of the law, I will always choose my own way just about every time. Because that's who I am. That's who I am as a sinner. I agree with my adversary when I surrender my rights to define morality or define goodness according to my own opinion. Agree. Agree with the definition of the law. Agree with my guilt according to the law. Because naturally speaking, our reaction to the law is exactly what Adam and Eve, how they reacted when they sinned. You know those... the. The, uh, the, the standard things we deny, we deflect, and we defend. We deny, oh, it wasn't me. We deflect, oh, it wasn't my fault. We defend, oh, it's not that bad. You, you just don't understand. When we agree and agree with our adversary, we say, you know what? I, I see my guilt before the law of God. Amen. In fact, that is the very purpose of the law. We looked at Romans 3.19 a few moments ago. That the world may become guilty before God. This is beyond just, I'm human. I make mistakes. Or, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm just a sinner like everyone else. Now it goes far deeper than that. Amen. It is I am guilty. I am in the wrong. I agree 
with my adversary, the law. We see an illustration of this in the, the publican and the Pharisee who went to pray. Do you remember those two? I wish we had time to turn. It's in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. It's the Pharisee who came and he treated the law as his friend. He said, look at all the things I do. I'm so thankful I'm not like everyone else. I'm so thankful I'm not like this publican over here. Here's all the things that I do that are good. And then Jesus switched the focus to the publican who's on his knees, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but smote on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, this man went home justified. Why? Because he agreed with the law. He saw the law as his adversary. He admitted his guilt. He agreed with the law. And that's what we need to do. Not only agree with the fact that the law gets to define what is good and what is not. Agree with our own guilt when faced to the law. But number three, we also agree with the justice of the punishment prescribed by the law. This one's a hard one too. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. Do you agree that that's just? That that's fair? That that's right? Oh, this thing of agreement is such a simple thing. It's such a small thing, but it is so very hard. Agreement is simple, but it's certainly not easy. Now, when we come to this place of finally being confronted by our adversary, and coming to a place of agreement, how does that agreement help us? What changes when we come to, when we follow this advice, when we agree with our adversary, what changes when that takes place? Well, our agreement then opens the door for what we need more than anything. And that is, number four, our advocate. We have an advocate. If you want to turn to 1 John chapter 2, you can see this for yourself. We'll read 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. This agreement opens the door now for access to the advocate. In 1 John 2, verse number 1. I'll give you a moment to find that. First John 2, verse 1 says, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then verse 2, And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. An advocate is one who comes alongside. It's one who pleads another cause. We have been brought before the judge by our adversary, the law. The law points its bony finger in our face and details every single offense. It doesn't matter if those things were done in the open for all to see or those things were done behind the closed doors of our heart. The law and the judge see it all. They pointed out everything. We have no hope. We have no help if there, not, if there would not be for an advocate who would say, well, I will plead your case. I will plead your cause. This advocate is an agreeable advocate. We don't have to twist his arm. 
He wants to help us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's one that will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He's an agreeable advocate. He's also an accomplished advocate because in verse 2, and this is perhaps the most important piece of all, in verse 2 we're told that the advocate, the reason why he's able to be so successful in representing those who, who he represents, the reason for that is that he is the propitiation for our sins. He's accomplished something. He's accomplished this idea of propitiation. You say, what does that mean? Propitiation is how the death of Jesus Christ affected God. It is an appeasing. It is the act of appeasing righteous and just wrath and conciliating the favor of an offended person. The law has been violated. Justice demands that the judge mete out an eternal punishment. Jesus is the satisfaction of that demand. Jesus is the propitiation of that demand. And because of this accomplishment, because he willingly went to the cross, because, as he stated while hanging there between heaven and earth, it is finished. In other words, the payment has been made. This is the only way for God to be just and still forgive. This is the only way for sinful man to be made right in the eyes of God. He's an accomplished advocate. The law has been violated. Justice demands a punishment. Jesus fulfills that demand. And because of this accomplishment, for those that come to him, for those who are willing to agree with what his law says, he's never lost a case. Because the payment that he made is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. That's everyone. That means if you desire to come to Christ if you desire to be saved, if you see your guilt and you're willing to, to confess, you're willing to, to state your agreement that you are guilty and you deserve God's just punishment, then the payment that Christ made is sufficient for you. You don't have to worry about whether or not you've been chosen or whether or not you're one of the elect. No, that payment is for you. It's sufficient for the whole world. Jesus is an accomplished advocate because he is our propitiation. But he's also an affordable advocate. You know, a good lawyer can cost you a pretty penny. He could cost you everything you have. You might expect such an advocate to take you to the cleaners, to cost you an arm and a leg. But all the services that are rendered by this advocate are pro bono. They are by grace. By grace. Free of charge. On one condition. What's that condition? Well, verse 25. Agree. The condition is agree with your adversary. Agree with God's law. Now, there's one more word that we didn't touch on here this morning in verse 25. Agree with thine adversary. What's the next word? Quickly. When should we agree? Quickly. Quickly. And then he, he, he further advances on that. While thou art in the way. While there is still time. While you have life. While there's an opportunity. While God is speaking to your heart. While, while, while God is convicting you. Agree. And agree quickly. Don't let 
the moment pass you by. Don't let the opportunity pass you by. God is dealing with your heart. He's, he's showing you the truth. You're coming to it and you say, I see what the Bible says. I see what salvation is. I see the fact that I've wronged a holy God. I see the fact that my guilt demands that God send me to hell. But I also see that Jesus paid the fine. He, he, he paid my punishment. He took that punishment on himself uh, for, for my sake and for my benefit, I see all of that. I, I agree with that. The time to come to Christ and to agree to that is today. Amen. It's today. Do it quickly while you're in the way. You don't know how much longer you have. You don't know the, the length of your days. You don't know the opportunities that God is going to give you by convicting your heart. If he's dealing with you today, then agree today. Amen. Agree now. It's time to agree. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. The time to agree is now. If you, cannot, if you cannot identify in your life a time where you, got, you were confronted with the accusations of God's law, if there's never been a time where you've seen the fact that you deserve God's righteous punishment for your sin, then right now you stand in danger of exactly what Jesus is talking about. That adversary is going to take you and bring you before the judge. And because you have no advocate, because you have not quickly agreed while you were in the way, all you have to stand on is your own two feet, your own goodness, your own life in comparison to God's law, and it's too late. We know the rest of the story. You're going to spend eternity paying for your sin, but you don't have to. You don't have to. Today, you can agree. Agree that God gets to define what's right and wrong. Agree with your own guilt. Agree that God's punishment is just. And accept the services of an advocate who's paid your fine for you. An advocate who just says, my services are by grace through faith. All you need to do, one condition, agree. It's time to agree.